Listen to us talk, we're a world-renowned Download our podcast Where you will consume all the doom and gloom From 99 and Max Many sound design always inspires To your heart's desire Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack Past your ears into your mind Through the heart, all the facts on your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M, Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G, Ryan F, Sultan, Specker. Terry C., The Younger PDX Squatch, William N., W. Jeremy D., and The Memory of Nettie McGee. Hey, unfuckers. Glad to be here with you. So this started out as a quickie because of the format, but it kind of got away from me. So here you go. Great. I second that. Well, we're talking today about, I don't know, cancel culture, the patriarchy, toxic masculinity, and what it pretends for our future. Oh, post-show musing should be fun. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Nothing like a little mansplaining of the patriarchy and masculinity from Max. <laughs> and we're off. Yeah, it's a bit like that. Tell you what, why don't we start with a palate cleanser off the bat so we can let the unfuckers settle in, at least with a smile. Um, I think this is the, um, place. Check the address again. Seems right. Um, let's check it out. Mr. Taibi, Mr. Greenwald, please come in. Mr. Carlson is expecting you. This, um, reminds me of Elon's house. Gentlemen, you can have a seat in here. Um, aren't you 99 from UNFTR? Got a moonlight to make ends meet. Max isn't a big enough independent platform man yet. Taking on the mainstream and corporate big guys With shows on YouTube, Apple, Netflix, and Spotify He got no time to pay attention to the lame-ass press He got a really great sleep on his Casper mattress He's pissing everything from vaccines to IRM Hit subscribe and rate Independent platform, man Hey guys, I didn't expect you Oh, uh, hey Ben, what are you doing here? Fundamentally, this is more of an existential gathering to fundamentally understand the fundamentals of fundamentalism. Fundamentally. I assume you know Jordan? I find this waiting room concept and motif to be the antithesis of the authoritarian feminist perspective of postmodern idealism. Makes me honestly want to cry. What Jordan means is he fundamentally finds comfort in the animal heads and pictures of naked women set against the rich tones of the dark wood paneling that fundamentally displays an aura of masculinity, despite the fundamentally fundamental notion that not a single one of us displays any of the fundamentally archetypal traits of said masculinity. Gentlemen! And I use the term loosely. <laughs> I kid, of course. Welcome to my hideaway. I'm glad you could make it. Thank you for having us, though we're a bit confused as to why we're here. I searched all the forums on 8chan and even asked Edward Snowden to find out anything he could about the meeting, but no one seems to know anything, except for probably the deep state. 
hopefully um, we're going to see some more Twitter files. Secrecy was of the utmost importance. I'm sorry for the subterfuge. There's something I want to show you now that I've been unceremoniously let go from my cushy job as the most prominent white nationalist on television. There's something wrong with our country when a white man can be let go for any reason. Yeah, sorry about that. Fundamentally. It's a fundamental reality that we need to shift. Precisely, Ben. And that's why I called you all here today. There's something I want to show you. Um, we... We all saw you tan your testicles on that Zoom meeting, you know, a while back. Not that. This. <gasps> Gosh, it's beautiful, indescribable. Mostly because I don't know what we're looking at, but it feels like the beginning of the universe. Um, are there Twitter files in there? Enough with the Twitter files, Matt. Oh, really? You've been talking about Ed Snowden for ten years. At least mine was a real story. Gentlemen, please. When I was fired, I came here to reflect. That night, a giant package showed up at my door, delivered by what I can only describe as a hundred giant Russian henchmen. They carefully removed this and installed it here in my bunker. It was a gift from Peter Thiel. Oh, my gracious. I know what this fundamentally is. I've been trying to get my hands on one for years. I didn't even know if it existed. Yes. Gentlemen, you're looking at a real-life echo chamber. Oh. Hey, Matt, go ahead. Why don't you try it out? Just lean in. Um, okay. Uh, like this? Um, um, uh, uh Twitter files. Twitter files. Ugh. Let me show you how it works. <clears throat> it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't an insurrection. It was a tour. It was a tour. It, was it wasn't an insurrection. insurrection. It, was, it a was a tour. Oh my gosh. How did you do that? Whatever's uttered into this chamber comes out of the mouths of white male nationalists all across the country. Not only were you involuntarily compelled to repeat this phrase, but as we speak, Jimmy Dore... Michael Knowles, Steven Crowder, and thousands more are uttering this very phrase. With the power of this, we can fundamentally alter the fundamental discourse of the nation. We can be gods. No, Jordan, we are gods. Unfortunately, this isn't the only one. My former employer is in possession of the original model that's been hardwired to reverberate in several nations, Karens across the globe, six Supreme Court justices, all of Fox News, Every white church, police station, and Republican state legislature. But Peter Thiel has outfitted this newer model with artificial intelligence, so it's learning and growing exponentially. As long as we all stay together and stay on message, over time, we can overtake the Aussie doomsday chamber, and then eventually, the world. <laughs> ben, I'll need you to settle things between Candace Owens and Stephen Crowder. Jordan... I'm going to need you to stop crying. Glenn, you're the key to South America and the incel community. Oh, and Matt? Um, keep reporting on the Twitter files? No, Matt. I spoke with Elon. He's an investor in this machine. He said, it's over, Matt. You're going to have to stop showing up at his house and calling. It's embarrassing. Meanwhile. Mr. Murdoch, Mr. Teal is here to see you. Thank you, 99. Leave us now. 
Max Spirit is fucking shit together. I can't keep doing this. What news have you brought, Peter? The chamber is in place at Tucker's house, my lord. Have you finished wiring it to the doomsday chamber? Yes, sir, I have. Excellent. Wherever you go, whatever platform you start, I'll be there, Tucker. This is all far from over. <laughs> Ninety-nine. Fetch me some water. It's said that Franklin D. Roosevelt carried on several affairs during his marriage to Eleanor, most notably with his secretary, Lucy Mercer. It's long been rumored that President Eisenhower had an intimate relationship with his driver and secretary, Kay Summersby, during the Second World War, something she confirmed in a deathbed autobiography. President John F. Kennedy was a legendary philanderer who even competed for women with his own father, which is gross. A 2019 biography on Barbara Bush revealed that she suffered from depression long ago, purportedly due to a decade-long affair that her husband had with Jennifer Fitzgerald, one of his personal aides. The upstanding bastions of fidelity in the modern era, where presidents are concerned at least, would most certainly be Jimmy Carter, George W., and Barack Obama. Now, you all know how I feel about Jimmy Carter, but considering Noam Chomsky was palling around with Jeffrey fucking Epstein, I'm not sure my heart can handle much more. So here's hoping that Jimbo leaves this world with his dignity intact. W and Obama, on the other hand, while paragons of faithfulness, were also outright mass murderers. George W. Bush is directly responsible for the deaths of between 280 and 315,000 Iraqi civilians, according to estimates from the Watson Institute. Barack Obama directly authorized and oversaw a total of 563 drone strikes in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen during his two terms compared to 57 strikes under Bush. Between 384 and 807 civilians were killed in those countries. Barack Obama is a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And what of dear Donald Trump? Donald Trump murdered an Iranian general in Iraq by drone strike. He also continued the unilateral authorization of drone strikes from Obama's tenure, but revoked the policy of transparency so we might never know the extent of the damage inflicted on nations where we had no formal declarations of war. He's twice impeached, once indicted, so far. Twice divorced, he bankrupted multiple companies, attempted to overturn verified election results, and incited an insurrection. Donald Trump has announced his re-election bid for president. Bad behavior among the rich and powerful is hardly news, and it extends way beyond the Oval Office. Clarence Thomas, bought and paid for by a billionaire who collects Nazi memorabilia. He remains a Supreme Court justice. Barry Bonds juiced for years, but he was the best slugger of the steroid era, and all he has is an asterisk. John Lennon had a legendary temper, once yelling at his son Sean so badly, he permanently damaged his hearing and sent him to the hospital. Ellen DeGeneres is apparently a flaming fucking asshole, but she'll always be Dory to me. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. J.K. Rowling is arguably the most commercially successful author of all time, and she's a turf and a dick. Michael Jackson settled so many pedophile accusations, it's hard to keep track. Currently, there's a Broadway show running all about him. Mel Gibson? Still working. 
As 99 mentioned in show notes this week, can we separate the artist from the art? It's an age-old question that inspires great debate, especially when one of your inspirations is revealed to be a cad. I love Finding Nemo. The Beatles? Come on. The 1986 Mets did enough cocaine to kill a team of horses, cheated on their wives, and got into bar fights. I live for this team. Though not my particular cup of tea, I understand the magic of Harry Potter, can probably recite Braveheart from memory, and won't turn off MJ if he comes on the radio, though I will roll up the windows. Recently, Elon Musk was crying to Bill Maher about cancel culture. Elon Musk, the billionaire, crying to a man with his own show on HBO. May the good Lord someday cancel me this terribly. Harvey Weinstein is gonna rot in prison because of cancel culture? No, because he's a fucking rapist. That's called criminal justice. Big time comedians like Chappelle and Louis C.K. complain of cancel culture, but all they did was substitute one fan base for another. While writing this episode, I became aware of the controversy surrounding the Karl Lagerfeld theme at the Met Gala. Don't know much about the fashion world, but apparently Lagerfeld was kind of a shit downplayed the Me Too movement, shamed plus-size models, and was inclined not to believe victims of abuse. Seems like a swell guy. Why not honor his work at a super-liberal gala? We all have our personal red lines. Mine, as you know, are typically around the marginalized and most especially Native people. I suppose this reflection is partly about the culture wars and cancel culture. It's about wokeness and political correctness. It's all gone too far, and yet again, not far enough. It seems as though we come face to face with cultural reckonings on a daily basis. It's something that we haven't really addressed here on the show because we prefer to be issue driven. But it, it feels impossible to ignore because culture wars have infected the body politic and the national discourse so completely. So this episode looks at three different but related situations that to me come down to integrity. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members, Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Brie X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, GWookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, Michelle H, and Nathan E. Chapter 1. Fox Untucked. In a text message obtained by the New York Times, sent by Carlson to one of his producers in the hours after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the host allegedly describes watching a video of a group of people he calls Trump guys violently attacking a, quote, Antifa kid, calling it dishonorable and adding, it's not how white men fight. Was this the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back at Fox? Was it Tucker's text saying he hates Donald Trump? Was it the abusive environment he fostered on his show? That Murdoch's ex-fiance supposedly had a crush on Tucker? Because advertisers felt they couldn't support his show, were his texts about election denials too revealing? Did Murdoch blame him for the Dominion suit? Did they finally come around to the fact that Tucker's toxic and destructive rhetoric was destroying the fabric of this nation one diseased Fox viewer mind at a time? Angelo Carasone, CEO of Media Matters, the right-wing watchdog organization, recently appeared on Brian Tyler Cohen's show to explain an alternate theory that, in my estimation, likely holds a lot more water. And I'll get there in a second. Tucker was arguably let go from Fox at the peak of his powers. He was free to break rank from other hosts and dabble in conspiracy theories and not-so-casual racism in a unique way. This led some to believe it was a power play on the part of Murdoch to exert his dominance and show that Fox is bigger than its hosts. 
That's not without precedent when you consider figures like Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, and even those who left on their own accord like Shepard Smith and Megyn Kelly. Regardless of the circumstances surrounding their departures, no former Fox host has been able to recapture the audience they had while under Murdoch's umbrella. And that goes for other networks as well, as Chris Cuomo found out, and I'm sure Don Lemon will as well. One quick point before getting to Carasone's take. Most of these former pundits have been able to amass significant audiences. But much like when Howard Stern left terrestrial radio for satellite, they all lost the amplification power of broadcast and the influence that it still has in the power structure in Washington, D.C. Fox is the preeminent power broker in the conservative universe, alone atop the mountain, whereas the liberal spectrum relies on a patchwork of influencer networks and outlets. One cannot obtain power in the conservative ecosystem without first bowing to the corporate masters at Fox. But here's where Carasone might have identified a chink in Fox's armor. Quote, the dirty secret about Fox News is that it is one of the only commercial TV channels that doesn't need a single advertisement to be profitable, if not the only one. In fact, Fox could have zero dollars in ad revenue and still have at least a 35% profit margin. This is the result of carriage fees and the guaranteed revenue they provide Fox, end quote. See, Fox receives between 2 and $3 per cable subscription on nearly every single cable platform. That's an enormous haul for one organization, and it's made Fox pretty much bulletproof in the past. The Dominion voting settlement, while substantial, is still manageable considering Fox is sitting on more than $4 billion in cash on hand and can either defray some of the cost of the settlement through insurance or a tax write-off. Can it continue to weather these kinds of settlements considering there are multiple settlements on the horizon that could conceivably be larger than Dominion? No company is that bulletproof. But remember also that Fox is still mostly controlled by the Murdoch family, which has an estimated net worth of between 17 and 21 billion. There's miles to go before counting out this family. But the carrier fee negotiations are what has made Fox bulletproof until this point. Carasone has suggested, based on credible leaks from the carrier negotiations, that things aren't going as well as previous negotiations and that Tucker's persona is one of the major reasons for it. The revelations that Tucker, among others, lied about election coverage and then went a step further to try and push the notion that January 6th was just a mass tour of the Capitol has purportedly been a huge sticking point for the cable companies that are getting a ton of blowback from subscribers. The fact that Tucker's time slot has lost a significant share of viewers would be less troubling to Fox if these negotiations weren't in full swing and so mission critical. The reason is that Tucker's show had difficulty attracting legitimate advertisers. But his dominance, adding more than a million viewers during his time slot than O'Reilly ever mustered, was enough to keep the pressure on providers to keep the popular host. So Murdoch's gamble to separate from Carlson, at least as Media Matters sees it, was more of a power play to eliminate a sticking point in the carrier negotiations, and it makes a ton of sense when you consider the economics of it. As far as Carlson is concerned, speculation is rampant about where he'll end up. Patrick Bet David, CEO and talking head of a conservative online media outlet called Valuetainment, just publicly offered Tucker $100 million over five years and an equity stake in the company. Some believe He'll start his own media empire in the vein of The Daily Wire and take his show to rumble. Newsmax and OAN, the fledgling conservative media outlets, are talking points as well, but it's hard to imagine Carlson downgrading in such a fashion. My fear would be some sort of hybrid, like a partnership with Daily Wire that involves more billionaire stakes, 
something that incorporates folks like Glenn Greenwald and packages the whole thing up as a new network that also finds its way to cable, like Rumble on steroids. Either way, Tucker is something of a phenomenon, different than O'Reilly or Glenn Beck. The text revelations seem to have little effect on his credibility with his audience, which is why he was still at the peak of his powers. And now he's aggrieved and has an axe to grind. I'm not suggesting he has it in him to take on Murdoch, but his milk-toast presentation while delivering divisive content is an effective cocktail. You can be sure that the evil billionaire roundtable is swirling with ideas about how to leverage this moment while Murdoch has his eye on these cable negotiations. It's a dangerous time. Chapter 2. Matt Taibbi. Show me the money. I like Elon Musk. I, I met him. This is part of the calculation when you do, the, do one of these stories. Are they going to give you information that's going to make you look stupid? Do you think their motives are sincere about doing X or Y? Uh, when And... and I didn't. I, I, I thought, I mean, I, I did. I thought his motives were sincere about, about the Twitter files, and I, I admired them. I think he did a tremendous public service in opening the files up. But that doesn't mean I have to agree with him about everything. And Agreed, when I, I agree with you. But you never, you never disagree with him. You've gone silent. People would say that's access I'm, journalism. No, no, I haven't done, I haven't reported anything that, that, that limits my ability to talk about Elon Musk. So will you uh, criticize or, him today? for banning journalists, for working with Modi government to shut down speech, for, you know, being anti-union. You, you can go for it. I'll give you as much time as you like. Would you like to criticize Musk now? No, I don't, I don't particularly want to. Um, I, it, look, I didn't, I didn't criticize him really before. Uh, and I think that what the Twitter files are uh, is a step in the right direction. Um, but it's the same Twitter that he's running right now. I don't, I don't right disagree with him. If you want to ask, I, I think... Understood, Matt. Well, I'll ask you a specific one. You, you, no, ask, you specific... no, 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 no. It's not in bad faith, Matt. Sorry. You it say that Twitter... Is. Hold on, hold on. Let me finish my question. You're saying that he's good for Twitter and good for speech. I'm saying he's using Twitter to help one of the most right-wing governments in the world censor speech. I will criticize that. Will you? I have to do... I have to look at the story first. I'm not looking at it now. Hold on, hold on. I, I, I posted the story two weeks ago. You tweeted oh, at me... Invite... I don't watch the Mehdi Hassan show. You do. Actually, you do, because you tweeted at me saying, invite me on the show, and I'll tell you my views. Here you are. No, what you, is your view? I, I on, there it is. There it is, look. Yeah, and you said, look, we'll read your words. Why don't you invite me on your show to talk about it, since you're so absolutely sure of what I'll say? This kerfuffle between Matt Taibbi and Mehdi Hassan is old news, and their war has only devolved since this moment. Taibbi's been on a tear, dragging Hassan through the mud and calling his integrity into question. Both men have received support from their camps, some surprising, most not. For Taibbi, the calculus since departing Rolling Stone appears to be subscriber acquisition purely. While Substack doesn't release subscriber figures or revenue, they do provide a range, and it's estimated that Taibbi rakes in between the high hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars annually as one of the biggest writers on the platform. By the way, so too does his Twitter files collaborator and disgraced former Times columnist, Barry Weiss. A lot's happened since the release of the Twitter files and Mehdi Hassan's utter takedown of Taibbi in a rather embarrassing performance on Taibbi's part. And it's not worth rehashing it because it moves so quickly and matters so little. What's of supreme importance is the amount of money at play in the independent media ecosystem. Journalists on the right and the left are getting hip to pocketing the surplus capital their work generates. How very socialist. 
Or is it the opposite? Forgive me for cribbing from an existing script because I actually did a short piece on Taibi recently for YouTube, but I want to bring these thoughts over to the podcast. As I noted in that piece, I had long been an admirer of Taibi dating back to my alternative journalism days. Even then he was a standout. I was among the throngs of journalists and fans who reveled in his tales of Russian corruption when he was a young reporter there, or how he interviewed John Kerry's campaign manager while high on acid and wearing a Viking helmet. I first became aware of his work, like many others though, when he published a cover story for the New York Press, then a legitimate competitor to the Village Voice, titled 52 Funniest Things About the Upcoming Death of the Pope. He was my generation's Hunter Thompson, and that's very much the point of this. Hunter Thompson was a fucking asshole. He was homophobic, misogynistic, and belligerent. But man, could he write. Personally, I think Hemingway was an asshole too. And as long as we're assailing the character of male American literary icons, check out Donovan Hone's soul-crushing piece in The Atlantic from 2015 that eviscerates Henry David Thoreau. That one really set me back. But the modern era of rogue writer preening for ideological audiences and leaning into culture war issues has taken on a different character with the ability to monetize their status as public figures to such an extreme. It should be noted, however, that the right-wing platforms are orders of magnitude larger than the left because they're all backed by massive donors. Dennis Prager's backed by the billionaire Wilkes Brothers, as is Ben Shapiro. Greenwald is hooked up with the likes of Peter Thiel through the auspices of Rumble. The others are soaking in adjacent money through a vast network of conservative donors as well. Now, Taibi is another matter entirely. He's largely gone it alone, and I don't think there's any evidence that he works at the pleasure of billionaires. In fact, he brawled with the only two would-be billionaire benefactors he ever had, first with the leadership at First Look, and now Elon Musk at Twitter, when he refused to leave his substack. So he's made a habit of biting hands that tried to feed him, at least. But I think there's more evidence now that he's loosened his standards to allow for the cult of conservative personalities to adopt him and remain quiet on their misdeeds. I find that unseemly, to say the least. And it has certainly augmented his subscriber base. But more than most of the others, he has built this on his own. That's the defense I'll offer with respect to Taibi. But he's also proven that we should be cynical if not downright distrustful of the intentions of these independent figures like him. Many of them peddle in hypocrisy, half-truths, and outright lies. They exist without the all-important layers of editors and editorial boards. Say what you want about the mainstream and corporate media, but there are more benefits than downsides to having your work challenged and vetted before it reaches daylight. The danger of hanging on every word that Taibi or others write or speak is that opinions are often masked as journalism. Matt Taibi is not a journalist, and that's an important distinction. Has he practiced journalism? Sure. But he's more of a social commentator and a writer than a journalist, and there's a big difference. Benjamin Franklin was a commentator and a writer. H.L. Mencken was as well. Hunter Thompson, Christopher Hitchens, Gore Vidal, William Buckley, James Baldwin, Chris Hedges, all writers who contributed to the national discourse and sometimes even held power to account. They can shape narratives and even provide evidence and source material that looks an awful lot like journalism but writers and journalists occupy distinct positions in related fields. So maybe that's why I'm not as wound up about Taibi as others are. Now, I think he has sold his soul to a large degree and fallen victim to the intoxicating metric of paid subscribers. It's going to be difficult for him to put this Musk affair behind him, and the scars from the lashing he received from Mehdi Hassan will be fresh for years to come. But to me, 
he's still the brash alt-weekly writer who just happened to have amassed a following in the spirit of Megan or Thompson. I actually don't hold him to all that high of a standard. He's no Jane Mayer, no Seymour Hirsch, or Ida B. Wells. Great journalism is all around, but we've lost the ability to distinguish between opinion writers and journalists, properly sourced, edited, and vetted material, and state-sponsored stenography. If you're looking to Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, or even Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, or Don Lemon for journalism of record, then you're doing this wrong. Chapter 3. Uncle Gnome. Say it ain't so. And now, for the gut punch. As 99 and I talked about in show notes, it was quite the shock when the Wall Street Journal discovered that Noam Chomsky was among the names found on Jeffrey Epstein's calendar several years ago. Apparently, Chomsky and his wife were scheduled to be flown to dinner with Epstein to talk politics, and that it perhaps wasn't their only encounter. While the flight itself is yet to be verified, when reached for comment, Chomsky said he had indeed met with Epstein on a number of occasions, that it was nobody's business, and that one particular meeting that included Woody Allen, of all people, was, quote, an evening spent with a great artist. Ugh. Chomsky more recently provided a fuller statement to the Harvard Crimson. Here are some highlights. Like all of those in Cambridge who met and knew him, we knew that he had been convicted and served his time which means that he re-enters society under prevailing norms, which, it is true, are rejected by the far right in the U.S. and sometimes by unscrupulous employers, Chomsky wrote. I've had no pause about close friends who spent many years in prison and were released. That's quite normal in free societies. I've often attended meetings and had close interactions with colleagues and friends on Harvard and MIT campuses, often in labs and other facilities, built with donations from some of the worst criminals of the modern world people whose crimes are well-known and who are, furthermore, honored by naming the buildings in their honor and lavishly praised in other ways. That's far more serious than accepting donations, obviously, and these are huge donations. I've met all sorts of people, including major war criminals. I don't regret having met any of them." End quote. Here's what I love about this and what I hate. I love that he still has the capacity to call out the hypocrisy of the wealthy class, whitewashing history through donations. It's no different than how we can call Obama and Bush decent men because they attended church and remained faithful, regardless of the death count of innocence. Here's what I hate. Why participate then? Was Chomsky's career dependent upon serving the donor class in academia? I don't think so. Is there nothing revolting enough about the actions of a man like Epstein that would cause him to simply take a pass? And while we're at it, how is dining with war criminals okay? It's gross. And his explanation, while stinging and accurate in the sense that our entire society is built on hypocrisy, doesn't make it okay. Fuck Jeffrey Epstein. And yes, fuck you too, Noam Chomsky. So, what did these three have in common? What's the thread here? Why highlight Taibbi, Chomsky, and Tucker? Well, it's more than a matter of convenience. Bring it home, Max. I dare you. Think of all the figures we've highlighted today and their positions in culture and the power structure. Presidents, justices, and cultural icons. Power brokers, pundits, and their billionaire benefactors. Take the outliers like DeGeneres and Rowling out of the mix 
and reflect back the very visible nature of power and influence in our society. In our oligarchy episode, I talked about the need for a new approach, a general system theory that incorporates the natural world and life-sustaining economic models into our political structure, and how it would be impossible to achieve this unless we removed money from the political system and began thinking holistically about the world around us. There's a disease within the corporate oligarchy and the donor class with a very specific nature, the disease of patriarchy and the characteristics ascribed to masculine forms of power. To be clear, I'm not making a feminist argument or even taking a gender to task. It's important to make a distinction between gender and gender roles and traits. Western forms of power assume patriarchal structures that reflect homogenous male characteristics. We often associate these with force, brutality, competitiveness, rigidity, and dogma. Whereas we consider the more feminine traits found in nature to be warm, flexible, nurturing, and egalitarian. The same trait that allows a figure like Chomsky to rationalize his association with a known abuser is the same one that views a mass murderer as a man of character so long as he conforms to the patriarchal norms of society. They should both be wrong. As Michael Corleone said, Senator, we're all part of the same hypocrisy. A general system theory disavows behavior traditionally and strictly associated with masculinity and sees it for the destructive force that it is. At the same time, it's flexible and evolutionary. As such, it doesn't disavow the credibility of the more constructive side of masculine thinking. There's a time for competitiveness and even brutality. Matt Taibbi's work on the financial crisis isn't entirely undone by his association with figures like Elon Musk or Tucker Carlson. Noam Chomsky's contributions to the political discourse in this country aren't diminished by his clear lack of personal judgment. Glenn Greenwald's worldview made him the perfect vessel for a particular topic of great importance. Tucker Carlson, well, Tucker's just a fucking prick. Point being, no one person is perfect. And as consumers and citizens, we're right to question the motives of those in charge of the policies that govern our lives and the information we consume. When these same figures blanch in any hint of criticism of their lives and views and retreat to name-calling and revenge, it's indicative of a fragile masculine ego that cannot absorb criticism and thereby reflect and evolve. To me, that's one of the more powerful aspects of the culture wars, if you want to call it that. Of course, it's playing out badly because it's jarring us from the comfort of the patriarchal mindset that has informed Western culture since its inception. These habits will die hard, but in discomfort comes learning, and only through learning can we evolve. FDR delivered the nation from despair, and he was a cheat. Chomsky informed and inspired generations of writers, philosophers, and regular people. Taibbi inspired me to write. Glenn Greenwald taught me to question the nature of the surveillance state. The fact that John Lennon was an asshole doesn't make the music bad, makes him a bad guy who made great music. The art and the artist. The conflict is ever thus. I know this much. My children don't give a flying fuck about any of these people. Not yet, at least. And if and when they ever do, they'll be reduced to names in history books or old video clips on some new social platform. They won't personally have meaning to them, but their contributions to society will, whether they know it or not. 
I'm all about tearing down their personal legacies as human beings if we can preserve the work. There's zero conflict in my soul about admiring Noam Chomsky's work and being wholly disappointed in him as a person. I will forever fight the urge to moonwalk when Beat It comes through the speaker, but it'll be there. I'll get chills listening to JFK's soaring rhetoric while knowing that he wasn't an unreachable deity, he was a scumbag of the highest order. It just tells me that we have miles to go as a species and that a better future is possible if we can align the grand visions of new young thinkers who are willing to cancel these paragons of society while preserving any intellectual gifts that they may have bestowed upon us. That's progress. That's the natural feminine character that a general system theory requires to think more holistically about the world. And now, for posterity, lest there be any confusion, let me conclude by saying conclusively, Tucker Carlson is a fucking asshole with no redeeming qualities. Matt Taibbi has lost the plot and is no longer offering anything of substance other than to line his own pockets. And Uncle Gnome, brilliant mind, terrible person. There, I said it. Here endeth whatever this was. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, welcome into Post Show Musings, sitting here with 99, who's uh, back from her moonlighting with uh, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch and uh, Tucker Carlson. I'm sorry that you have to do those things on the side. I'm trying to build this thing as, as fast as I can so you don't have to do that kind of work. And they only paid me 10 cents on the dollar. Well, that's your worth, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, can Chomsky dig further? Like, is there any more, is there any more to unearth as he, as he just keeps releasing statements? I think he just doesn't emote the same way. So he doesn't, he's, he's too intellectual to be emotional. So he's like, yeah, I've met war criminals. It's, it's all right. It's cool. Yeah. They're people. I, it's just, <laughs> I'm sorry, bro. We all, we're all for rehabbing people who've been incarcerated. Serve your time but not sex offenders Can <laughs> or rapists and traffickers. Different. Sex offending doesn't even, it's too mild to apply to Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. yeah rapist, abuser, sex. I mean, it, it's, it's all of it. I mean, it's rape. It's pedophilia. It's all of it. It's horrible. Just to, just to back off it for one second. What I, the guy just twists me in knots though, because it's like, I, I do think that somebody who slaughtered, hundreds of thousands of people doesn't deserve to be like lauded in our society the way it is. And so it's like, even in this, he's still trying to teach a lesson that like, he's like, well, I don't know, you know, don't look at me, you know, look at you. You're the ones that, you know, that uh, pay for Barack Obama's uh, Netflix documentaries and all this kind of stuff. And he's a fucking war criminal, like in his weird mind, like, I don't know. He's like, he's putting up a mirror that I find so useful because very few people see the world that way. And it's like really good for us. But at the same time, like he's not looking in the mirror. He's not looking in the mirror. Like, come on. But please also be reflective of this stuff. And just like, come on. 
I don't think he's capable. I Has he ever, I, I don't know him, you know, his work as well as you, but has he ever not debated something? Is he ever like, you're right. I've never seen it, no. So. No, no, no. You never. know, he's probably a really difficult person. Mm-hmm. He's probably a fucking annoyance to have around yeah. and to hang out with. I mean, how boring. No offense. How fucking boring must he mm-hmm. be? I'd rather talk to the war criminal. They might have a story to tell. <laughs> Noam Chomsky's literally, he's like doing ASMR. I'm going to fall asleep. So, uh, not he shocking to me. hold his head up anymore. It's, it's crazy. That, but I I guess it, it, there's there's so many different lessons that, that are coming out of this time period. And... I'm not even sure that I even drove really to the conclusion that I was trying to put out there because I was trying, I was really trying to relate this back to what I was trying to get at with general system theory because it's where my head is at right now. And just the need, oh, this is what I wanted to bring up to you though, 99. So as I'm thinking about this stuff and that for me, it was a very natural place to go from this really introspective essay on oligarchy and money and politics and general system theory and try to think about climate change and incorporate all of these really important societal changes to this thing where we're focusing on something like culture wars that happens to be symptomatic of the type of system that we have. And all of these things are interrelated. But you could also conclude from that, like, okay, so the need for a general system theory for a more natural order for to contemplate climate and earth and more classically ascribed feminine characteristics of governance into the way that we think about the world start to sound a lot like Marianne Williamson. And there's people that have been pushing back on me about like, you know, can you like very specifically about this idea of creating a proper political class? And I feel like that's actually like part three of where I need to go with this about talking about Right, really refining what I'm what I mean by a political class, because so many people are now, you know, think about that as the swamp, we need to drain the swamp. We don't need professional politicians. We should have term limits. We should, you know, all those things that come along with talking about the political class. But it, just in sitting here talking about the qualities of leadership that we need and trying to push for a more holistic view of governance, it starts to get into that sort of like, I, I can see why any progressive who is like aligned with that type of thought would also be wooed by somebody like Marianne Williamson who's talking about a more holistic and spiritual, you know, approach to to um, life and governance and political structures. I'll push back on that a little. I don't think that for I think the association comes in play firstly because she is the only female candidate right now. Yeah. So that's the obvious one. I don't think people who are following her from the political aspect have actually dug into the background as deeply as like the conspirituality guys do, which is why, I mean, you know, it's the only reason I know these things is because I'm I'm listening to them specifically and, you know, now I'm aware of it, but I don't think other than her people just knowing that, you know, she has a dumb book that she follows, it's not really part of her platform. She's trying to ingratiate herself to progressives and say, I'm one of you, but she's not. So I don't think progressives are being wooed by her spirituality. I think they think she's one of them. So, um, I, you know, what you're talking about just sounds more like like a peaceful, normal society. Um, I'm not even super comfortable with the gender binaries we used here. I, I understand the, the stereotypical, you know, soft and whatever, but 
I don't know. I feel like it might be tired. So that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about in uh, and I deliberately did not want to run any piece of this by you beforehand when I was constructing the narrative because I wanted like a, a, a genuine spontaneous response from you about. So to me, this is about language, but our language is evolving. And so I have to be reflective about that as well when, when we do this. To me, it's 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 taking traditionally feminine qualities and detaching them from the gender of a woman. Feminine in qualities in a language does mean something, right? So not in our language. We don't have in most languages, though, there are we don't have feminine structures like French and Spanish do, though. Oh, not it. Right. You're right. Yes. So not in the actual structure of the language itself, but in the in the meaning of behind those words. So a feminine trait, a man can have a feminine trait and that not be gay. Right. If we're just going to be really base about it. Right. So you can if you are if you embrace your feminine side, so to speak, in the in the you know classic sense, you are considered to be a warmer, more nurturing, caregiving person. So that's that's how that's built up. Right. Yeah, because society says that the mothers, women are caregivers. I just think I understand what you're saying. And yes, it's all true historically, but that's not the future. At least I'm trying to build to personally. And I think people who are aligned with me, you shouldn't have to embrace your feminine side to be warm. <laughs> just that makes you a warm person, you know. So I think it's kind of reductive to be like, well, this is what it was. And so we're going to keep using that language and say that, you know, mother, mother nature and mother earth and all that and flowy and soft and nice is feminine. It shouldn't have to be. It should just be a person because there is no binary. We made up the binary or the binary doesn't exist. We made it up. So there should never have been a feminine trait or a masculine trait. We just we just decided. Right. So I don't think anyone would be sad in, to say that we're losing about that. It though, when we but so at the same time, sometimes you define things by its antithetical property. So when you talk about toxic masculinity, you sort of understand that it's this extreme version of what are typically ascribed masculine traits. And so by doing that, it helps us sort of understand what that means, you know? So I do think it in this, I, I consider it part of the evolutionary process of our language and our thinking to be able to settle these things in our minds. Because when I'm growing up, it was a man and a woman, and you were either something really pejorative, if you were a man with, you know, female traits, you know, with so-called feminine traits, or you were just a tough guy, right? And there was really no distinction between that. And these things started to blend and, and emerge in our language and our culture over time that made us understand that. So let me define mas masculinity a little different by telling you the toxic end of this thing. And it's sort of like it's growing and evolving and it's helping, I, th I think, us understand in different genres, whether it's in, in music or family roles or politics, it's helped... Talking about that language so explicitly right now is helping people of my generation kind of connect with your generation. And then the next generation that comes along is going to be able to sort of drop the definitions of it and all of these like long tail explanations for what we mean, because they're just going to more innately understand. I just like I can't get from here to where you want us all to be, as an example, like in using that language, even though I agree with you, because I'm still like retraining my brain so much. But if I'm working so fucking hard to retrain my brain, like legitimately by writing and working through it and considering it and trying to learn and evolve, 
I just know that so many more people just don't have time to put in the work, don't give a fuck about putting in the work or, or doing it. So I just, I feel like this is, I feel like everything's changing, but it's a good thing. That's why I'm not mad about the culture wars. That's the, you know what I mean? Like that's the, the example I was trying to give you about the culture wars. Like I'm not bothered by it, like have it out because I do think that the better side of this will ultimately prevail and that that Gen Z and whomever they wind up birthing, it'll be the norm, you know? Um, I mean, yeah, yes. I just am not going to wait around for people younger than me to, to just assimilate and be born into it. So I, I don't I don't know. I just. Like I had you on the brain, obviously, when writing that whole piece about it, like and, and being very deliberate about using ascribing feminine qualities and talking about prototypical ma masculine qualities that have dominated our politics because we have such a bifurcated view of how the world should be run. It's like I remember that, that we talked about it before. Jordan Klepper from The Daily Show was at a Trump rally interviewing a woman who said she didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president because, you know, she could get her period and start a war. And he said, but haven't all wars been started by men? Like that's that sort of binary bifurcated thinking that has dominated us no matter who we are. And there's like, I don't know, unless I unless I were so specific about saying like, no, 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 it's okay to have these type of what are classically, you know, derived feminine traits in our politics, because look where the masculine traits of the patriarchy have gotten us so far. Like we have to speak to it and we have to label it and define it to break down these barriers of understanding that we have before we can evolve and get to the next place, you know? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I disagree. Um, I think toxic masculinity, it's not a framework. Like it's not like a framework of to explain gender binary. It's just a symptom of what's happened and something we've labeled it is like, this is toxic masculinity because of the way our patriarchal society and history has raised our assigned male at birth people or people who identify as men, whatever. I don't know that we should just be like, hey, you're being a toxic man and we should be more like ladies because they're not going to start a war because they're soft and nurturing. Like, that's just reductive. <laughs> so the whole thing is strip away. Like, if you if you can only describe nurturing by saying a woman, you're wrong. Like that's fucked up. Your word should not be a definition of a of a fake identity. It's not like we created womanhood and we decided we're less we decided women are lesser. So I don't know. I don't I don't really think that approach works because it just it's a half step on the road to progress, which I understand is important, but it's not gonna do anything in that way. Let's switch gears. You're Tucker Carlson. You take the hundred million from valuetainment over five no, years. No, because it's called valuetainment. <laughs> Was that Chuck E. Cheese for like investors? Name. Are you asking me if I take the money? Yeah. No, that's not enough money. Not enough. No. If you're Tucker. Of course not. I can get right. whatever I want at that point. I mean, maybe not. Maybe if if whatever comes out, you know, whatever they know that we don't know yet concretely. Uh, if it's really, re I mean, we know it's going to be bad, but if it's bad enough for other right-wing people to not want to touch him, maybe he can't get it, you know, can't get what he wants. But a hundred million over five years, that's not a good salary. For, I wonder what he's, what he was making. He was probably in like five, six million dollar a year guy. Maybe. I, I it seems low. I don't know. 
I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, or maybe I'm giving Fox too much credit. Well, but also, you're probably, you know, baking in there what what he could be making. If you consider that on the high end of the scale that Matt Taibbi, just as a writer, just fucking writing on Substack, is probably making... I mean, they, they really put in some low estimations of the high hundred thousands, but the, their top line estimation in the article that I linked in the piece is $5 million. Let's split the difference on the low side and say he's making $2 million a year just from writing pieces on Substack. Not out of the realm of possibility for a Tucker Carlson who has the pot, who has the potential to attract a, a multi-million person audience to command $20 million. Yeah, you know? I think he's going to want it. Whatever it is, it'll be splashy. I don't, he's not, he's not one for, what's the word I'm looking for? A casual showing. Yeah. And he's, he certainly can't go backwards to like the Newsmax or some fucking, you know. Yeah. Lame knockoff that can't even get, uh, you know, the right cable penetration, but. Yeah, he's not going to go to one that you have to ask your cable box to add on. They're also saying it's interesting because he's all, he's 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 kind of different in the in the respect that he only had the show. So this is one of the points that they brought up on Cohen's podcast. Just the show. So one hour a night and only on TV. They repurpose some of his content here and there for, you know, their digital channels, but you know, you've got you've got Hannity doing a couple hours on TV doing a few hours on radio, doing a podcast, but they're all different. Like they're, they're themed, obviously, and a lot of the stuff, you know, they get cut up and whatever in, in, in production, but they're, they're like orthodox to the particular platform. This guy was just on TV. Just, yeah, but then one thing. you got a bunch of knuckleheads like us, you know, eating all his words and, you know, majority report and TYT and all of us who are just taking what he says, we're clipping it, we're talking about it. Yeah. We're giving him all the eyes he needs. Yeah. So like all the free media Trump got gets yeah. will have, will continue to have. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's the reason why people list Tucker as more of an offender than Hannity. Hannity might have a broader reach in some ways just by platform. Mm-hmm. But Tucker says the fucked up thing. Yep. And calls amplified. it news. Mm-hmm. When I quote Chomsky in the future. Are you going to come up with some sort of sound effect to insert after each one? I don't know. I mean, the whole art and artist thing, um, it's an exhausting conversation. It is. You know, it's one I have with myself in my mind constantly because every person who arises to some level of fame is inherently bad, apparently. Like, find a good one. Everyone's said something. Everyone's done something. And I've said I believe in growth and change. And I do believe people you know, make mistakes and they learn from them, especially with social media and people getting on it when they're like five. And then, you know, Mm. we have a famous person who's 20 who like, you know, made a weird YouTube video when they were five (laughs) and stuff like, fuck the F words. Like, I don't know, you know, so I, yeah, I mean, we're gonna inevitably run up against quoting him. I, I don't know. It's, all I'll say is the agreement me and my roommate have is that you can listen to the Jackson 5, but you can't listen to Michael Jackson. Is that right? Yeah. Interesting. I just feel like he wasn't, he was being abused at that point. He mm-hmm. wasn't the abuser. Mm-hmm. So also I'm shocked at what's his face had a female driver. That was sorry. I've been thinking about it the entire time. Eisenhower? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They let a woman drive him. Okay. With yeah. her feminine traits. Yeah. She was a captain. She was a captain. Still shocking to me. Yeah. She was, a, she was a, actually a remarkable woman. Oh, actually? As yeah. if a woman couldn't be one? 
A remarkable person. <laughs> yeah, she's very accomplished uh, and strange that so she, as a captain in the military, she could only go so far. So she was assigned as the secretary, but she was, I mean, behind the scenes, what a, a, a tremendous confidant in, in, a, in a time where he really needed some strategy and planning. She, she certainly played more of the role. Apparently, so she had a, um, what do you call it? An authorized biography of her, uh, detailed all of the accomplishments in her life. And she said it was strictly platonic. We were just friends and we were colleagues and whatever. And then after he died and then she was on her deathbed and she thought that there was no more Eisenhower's to offend she admitted that uh, it was more than that, uh, but that they, on two occasions, tried to consummate the relationship and he couldn't. So Jesus, yeah, that's so really she, airing his fucking very dirty specific. laundry. <laughs> it's very, very She's specific. Like, yeah, he had ED <laughs> yeah. and sucked. Yeah, uh, um, FDR, quite the quite quite the scoundrel. I think they five plausible or slash probable relationships throughout his marriage, and one that he was very much in love with. Nice. Um, JFK uh, and his dad bragging um, about sleeping with the same women and trying actively to actually compete and then asking the women who was better. Um, This is White House years. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Just horrible. Doesn't shock me. No, I guess not. George H.W. Do you know that little nugget? What, that he cheated? Yeah. Ten-year affair? I wouldn't care. (laughs) So that's... uh, the, The George W. Bush thing... Like Obama, so George W. Bush, that doesn't that doesn't hurt me at all inside, you know. That he was faithful. That he doesn't make them better. No, that he was a, a mass murderer. That oh. doesn't that doesn't hurt me. I have no like conflict with that. You know, it's the guy's just he was horrible on every front, in my opinion. And the Obama one still hurts, though. You know, to to really see it clearly, and I I don't think I really started to. It was it was Cornell West who reframed Obama for me, and then I sort of couldn't unhear it after that. Got to talk about the Obama years. You got to talk about the policies. You got to talk about that. I mean, he was the leader of the country. But, you know, if you are, you know, Yemeni civilian whose entire family was wiped out by an accidental drone strike that literally has his signature on it and they got locked in a vault in the White House, like, it's a pretty fucking terrible guy. I mean, terrible. No, you know, foreseeable threat or no discernible immediate threat to the United States coming from that little fucking village, just a, it's like minority report. Like we think you're going to commit a crime sometime in the future because you're a young person that's been radicalized by, you know, an, an Islamic preacher that wandered through the countryside once to fucking destroy your family. Oh, and your entire family went up in flames too. Like that piece of our brain, that art and artist piece of our brain that we struggle with is like, you know, I don't, I don't want to hold any of these people up anymore like you get to a certain point where you're just fucking destroyed by the whole thing and it just it hurts you know because yeah that's why people just turn away yep you know yeah we see cake and sell at madison square garden two mm. nights in a row or whatever it was mm-hmm. people just don't care you know it and i get it i understand it i do it is exhausting mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to say fuck it i mean i was a harry potter kid growing up literally i was like I liked it not to be contrarian, but I was like the annoying one in my class because I was like the Harry Potter kid. Like that was my identity. Mm. My room was Harry Potter like themed and. Oh, I had the beaded jacket. Ew. The zippers. That's embarrassing for you. Sure is. Not for me though. Sure is. But you know, it's very, one of my friends texted me and was like, did you see they're going to make a Harry Potter TV show? And I was like, yeah. She was like, I'm so excited. And I, I just didn't want to. And I was like, me too. So I was like, I can't, I can't get into it because, you know, it's so conflicting. Like, that's something that was years 
my comfort movies still are like when I'm sick, I watch I watch them. Mm. I fell asleep listening to Harry Potter every the movies every like from the age of eight on like every mm-hmm. night. You know, I know the DVD like menu, <laughs> like I can hear the sounds. And then you think about all the people in that in the economic universe that were so positively impacted by that work. So everybody that had worked for years and years on the films, everybody that had worked at the printing industry, it revived the book publishing industry almost single-handedly. I mean, just some enormous long tail effects that you can point to and be like, oh, I guess the greater good. And that's why, people, you know, that is the, that's the secondary argument. If you're having a conversation with someone, you say, I can't separate the art from the artist. They say, why should we punish the people who were just doing their jobs? Right. Right. And I, I think that's, there's a spectrum, like the well-meaning person that works at Monsanto, is maybe, just trying to feed their maybe. family and and got a <laughs> science. I'm like it's Monsanto and got a science degree, and they work in a different division that actually does some good work. It happens. Yeah, right? yeah, that it one's a, that one's a little tough. It's you a, grew up in a town where they're the only employer, and they do, and you happen to do some good good work, and you came home to take care of your parents because you have an engineering and science degree, and that's where you landed. And sure, you're going to make a difference within that corporate culture. Sure happens yeah there's you you know that very weird and specific example or i was gonna i was gonna go the other way like i was gonna say it's actually not a weird and specific example because it's almost every fortune 500 company out there that does fucking really terrible things out in the world but there's divisions of them that it's just people that have a job that need to feed their families and they just they they don't have a choice but to think about life that way yeah I, i was just going more specifically down still like i wouldn't consider what monsanto does art so like separating the art from the artist, you know, that's yeah. more separating the business from the people who work there, which I think is a much easier feat for people because I don't know that anyone's emotionally invested in Monsanto like they are in Harry Potter, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was going to say like, if you're knowingly working with Harvey Weinstein for 15 years, like mm-hmm. maybe you do deserve to get punished for that. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't watch your work, you know? <laughs> but if you worked on a Harry Potter film, like you just but before she was a turf, you know, I would I question the fact that they're giving her like producing rights on that show. To me, that makes it kind of maybe I don't watch this. Like mm. everybody who's signing on to that knows they're working with her. Right. So there's different, you know, everything. It's it's the same way people are still working with Woody Allen or. Right. Well, I think I think he's officially maybe been benched maybe after his last movie. But oh, it took long enough, though. Uh, yeah. And that's only that because it didn't perform at the box office. Like, to be clear, well, the capitalist structure kind of took no, care of they that. Wouldn't, no, they didn't release it here. They wouldn't release it here. So he got canceled, kind of, I mean, officially canceled. I think it's because theaters are dead unless you're Top Gun Maverick, though, right? I mean, there's, yeah, this, he's not going to be a box office Led by the Scientologist. Smash. There you go. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who ruin people's lives and take lots of people's money. That's right. Literally. Yep. Ruin. Danny Everything Masterson. sucks. <laughs> Everything fucking sucks. Rapists. They won't do anything but i don't know Um, i had a a hard time trying to like really really convey to my youngest i don't know why so i had michael jackson on the brain because it might have been an ad for uh the show on broadway and that sort of like inspired a conversation and then um whatever it was she knows the music sort of peripherally she's like heard of it doesn't like it's the, the kids don't actually love like the core Michael Jackson era music like yeah, that really hasn't annoying. caught on the way it like it was a fever in our time. And I was trying to explain to her he was inescapable. I mean, a figure the size of which we don't have figures anymore. Taylor Swift. No, like Taylor's not nearly as much of a cultural icon to in the way that the the way that Friends is a rounding era compared to MASH. So it 
remember, you're still at a time. I just don't know that the numbers stack up that way if you looked at them. That's what I'm saying. The numbers do stack up. It's it's purely a numbers game. Like Friends has a lasting impact on the culture and it had like a, t- a tremendous amount of meaning. And even Friends isn't such a great example because it was on the cusp of like the, the digital technological revolution. Michael Jackson was all we had to pay attention to. We did not have phones. Like, and I, and I can't, that's not something I can really like get my kids to understand like in at a core, you know? Have them watch the documentary. Which one? Leaving Neverland. No, no, no. I'm not talking. I'm trying to say. <laughs> oh, I know. But you'll see that he used to fax these children. That might, that might. Uh, I wasn't trying to talk them in or out brain. of liking him. No, I was I trying to, to explain to them like why, about how he was such a big deal and that why it was like even harder for people to kind of get over it. because for them, then fuck that guy, right? I'm like, no, well, you see that at that time. So this is my core youth era. Michael Jordan was the biggest athlete star in the world forever. Muhammad Ali was, you know, the same thing, the generation before that. Michael Jackson, the biggest star on earth, could not go anywhere without every single person on this planet recognizing this person. We don't have that level of fame today because... We have such a, you know, it's sort of a, a fractured society where we're all in our own little silence. That's why I just I think any almost any person on this earth who has access to technology, which, you know, some people don't, but mm-hmm. I think would recognize Taylor Swift. That's why. Oh, and I, Beyonce. I disagree. You might not be steeped enough in in that. As she breaks every chart, her sales. No question. No question. But but among. So she's a she's a standout among so many different, you know, people and players or whatever it is. Michael Jackson, it was understood if you were a toddler or 90, everybody knew him because again, we had five channels. I get it. And no telephones. (laughs) Yeah. Like even you can't appreciate that moment in time that only you, you, you knew what they fed you. That was it. And it was all manufactured and there was just fewer things to look at, you know? cultural touchstones in the way that we'll never have them again. I think it's easier for generations now to really eliminate bullshit than it was for us to sort of get over these things. Like, I I think we have like a real like generational mindset that's like, but it's Michael Jackson. Like the producers of that show are probably like, oh, we know this is going to be kind of talk, but it is Michael Jackson. People will come and see it. Whereas I just don't see anybody today in this culture being so invested in anything so singularly across the board that they wouldn't be able to write that person off if they did the same shit that he did. That's where you're wrong. People still support R. Kelly. Who? It's out there. R. Kelly? Yeah. I don't think anybody supports R. Kelly anymore. What you, this is, you're, you are, what you're arguing right now is that cancel culture is real. It's not real. Nobody gets canceled. In a good way. I, I think in a good way where it's evolving is that's why I say it's like it's it's gone too far because it's just everywhere. It's all anybody talks about and yet not far enough because it's it's still my generation and older are still holding on to these like these ideas of, you know, people that are propping up Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle. They're not 17 and, and 19. This is, this is my older people that not are doing to that. Keep you, well, number one. 
the, the MJ musicals new. So those are people now producing it and young people starring in it. So starring in it is one thing, producing it and putting it on. Why and is all it that any and... different than starring in it? Why would you make that conscious decision if, if a young per the person playing young Michael Jackson, who was awarded a Tony last year, I believe, you know, what, what's the difference? People not to use again, Taylor Swift. You do not know how rabid some of these these fans. I and do know how rabid some of the fans so are. So I'm saying she can have as many transgressions. It, to me, let's use someone who has actual transgressions. Let me think of somebody. Um, well, how about the fact that she can't hold a boyfriend? It has to insert You're right, her boyfriend into, of six years that they just broke up totally. has to insert herself into every like cool band's <sighs> like recording session. She's like, oh, the National, Bon Iver, I'll record something with you. And they're like, no. And she just fucking forces herself on everybody. Every, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm only matter. getting this in because she's thinking of something else because she would literally throw something at me right now. She was really paying attention to me. I'm paying attention. I'm ignoring you. <laughs> I just, I, I think, I just think you're wrong. <laughs> I, you know what? About what? That, you just like saying I'm wrong. It, that people I'm, aren't canceling, that people are willing to cancel people in the, in the true terms of it. Maybe someone like me. But if it was, if Taylor Swift came out and I, I'm, I'm not, I am a Swifty, but I'm not like, you know, going and yelling at people at her show for like not knowing the words to a song, which is apparently happening. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not violent. Enjoy Jeez. her at, at your own pace and leisure. If she did something really horrible, it would be a struggle for me. Like I would be very conflicted about somebody who means a lot to me. I see, you know. A mutual friend who used to work here, uh, whose aunt also used to work here, their favorite got artist <laughs> got canceled because he was an abusive person. And, you know, Joe Biden, <laughs> no, the niece's favorite person, favorite oh, artist. Sorry. She has a ta his logo tattooed. So did her husband. Thanks. Like after. No, okay. but it's it's very it's difficult. How do you give up something? People today are just as obsessed as ever and look i thought i was in the clear with noam chomsky the guy's 96 for christ's sake i thought he was doing he was on a pretty good ride God and you're never it. it's you you can never get that's comfortable. why i need jimmy carter to go right now and nobody to ever write another thing about him ever again that's when all the shit's gonna please, come out are you kidding jimmy, me they, they put out that piece this the day after we published ours about the oh. guy who tried to kill him or whatever oh. i don't know i just don't think i i think yes we are open to calling out wrongdoings more than previous generation like i guess let's start at the elder millennial mm -hmm. line mm -hmm. and go down we are definitely more open because we've seen more shit you know collectively than we've seen more shit in a short time span than your generation has i think we used to hide more shit too yeah and i mean no you just today. could hide you yeah. could hide you could be a rapist mm. and just walk around uh fucking jimmy saville like shit who was on tv every fucking day oh yeah things right. like that that's the british guy right? yeah you yeah. can you could have hidden in plain sight then or you could have just hidden period because we didn't have cctv following us around and you know a tracking device in our pockets yep. so we've seen more shit in our lifetimes and we know what's wrong now. Like, mm -hmm. yes, touching a woman or any touching anybody, excuse me for only saying women, is wrong without mm -hmm. their consent. Mm -hmm. Consent matters. Mm -hmm. That really wasn't a thing. <laughs> like when you were a kid, it, consent wasn't a topic. So we are more open. Um, these these ideals are instilled in us, but people are quick to forget 
of all ages. I forget. I can't keep track of everybody who's canceled <laughs> or who should be canceled, let's say. You know, I forget. Like, but it doesn't mean that we, that everyone in my generation and younger is going to be the next savior because there's a lot of fucking Trumpy, MAGA, incel, toxic bros, toxic females, toxic white femininity, all of that in there. Turfs. They all exist. Mm -hmm. You know, hopefully we have less. Hopefully we're being taught more at a younger age, but also now we're moving backwards and, you know, we're whitewashing our history somehow even more. Only in Florida. <laughs> they would have it be everywhere. So I just disagree that, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe Gen Z's children, maybe if we're lucky, but we, we can't give up the fight because we're hoping someone else will do something. And I know that's not what you're saying, but we should be on the front lines advocating for what we believe in and what should happen, even if we don't know it's going to happen in our lifetime. So if it's as simple as breaking down the gender binary of feminine and masculine words, like I think that's a hill I'm willing to die on, that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be continuing that. I mean, even before, like I said, like she was actually a remarkable woman. Like that's a microaggression. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't mm -hmm. think about it. It's like calling a black person well spoken where you think it's a compliment, but it's like, well, the you know, you're implying that they shouldn't be. Right. So and that's what I, I I deal with this every day. You know, I live in this world and I get microaggressed. And so do plenty of other women and, you know, female presenting and especially women of color, people of color, like this is the world we live in. And we're trying, you know, a lot of us are trying. So on this show, if we're really going to unfuck the Republic, we need to be a bastion of that and, mm. and you know, begin as we mean to go on. Told you that post-show musings would be spirited. <laughs> Speaking of yelling at people for not knowing the lyrics to things, I'm going to go to Billy Joel on Friday night. Good for you. And I will yell at people if they don't know the lyrics to every single song, because that's where you're supposed to. Uh, you were afraid to go to like a small show and now you're going to Madison Square Garden, presumably? Say, uh, or is it... Surprise gift from my little one is for Father's Day. It's just Stevie the two Nicks of us. Tour. Hmm? He's on doing like a co-tour. Nope. That's fun. Yep. Just the two of us. Well, this will come out after. So if you were also there. Yes. You and now I have COVID. the same era with Max. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, as always, Unfucking the Republic is uh, engineered, uh, sound design, uh, the, the things behind the glass uh, and the magic, especially the, uh, coming off of a, a week that didn't have him stuff, is done by the great Manny Faces. What should I have said? Um, My fuckers probably know it by heart now. They do. Yeah. As you always. figure it out. You're the man. Okay. Smart and leader and powerful. Those are your your traits. Good good memory. I think it was uh, belligerent. Um, Can't even remember your own words. Yeah. It's produced by the all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent, wonderful 99. I'm Max. All the original music is produced by Tom McGovern. You can go to TomMcGovern.com. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Sign up for our newsletter where you can get all the stuff. And go to UNFTR.com and take out a membership. Fuck it. Right? <laughs> get your uh, tax refund in the mail. Take a slice of it. Send it on over to good old Max in 99. Give a little piece to Manny Faces. Everybody eats over here. All right, I'm fuckers. See you soon.